Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is episode 104 of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. In this episode, I sit down with my good friend and co-host, Rye the Adventure Guy, to discuss our first time going smelt fishing. So, stay tuned. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. I wanted to announce a very big event happening in the summer of 2022. I want to give you this information now in the wintertime so that you have time to prepare for this because this is a big deal. The 2022 Global Bushcraft Symposium has been announced. It is going to be happening from July 27th to the 31st of July in the year 2022. It is being co-chaired by Lisa Fenton and Paul Kirtley, names that you should be well aware of, folks, especially if you're all into the bushcraft world. Speakers are including Dr. Teresa Camper, Bruce Zawalski, Gordon Dedman, ba- Patrick McGlinchey, and Rupert Brown. These are these and many others are why I'm excited. These are some of the greatest brains of today when it comes down to woodcraft, survival, indigenous ancestral skills, anything you can think of in the realm of bushcraft. It is happening at this event. And it's happening in Wales, United Kingdom in July 27th to the 31st in the year 2022. So pack your stuff up now, get it all ready, get your passport in order, get all the stuff you need in order, because this is going to be a very big event, very, very big event that I am excited to be going to with Rye the Adventure Guy. We may even record a few podcasts with some folks while we're there. Hope to see you there this coming summer from July 27th to July uh, July 31st. If you want to learn more, go to www.globalbushcraftsymposium2022.com. Again, www dot global bushcraft symposium 2022.com to know the landscape is to open up a door to feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before we know that you will love this podcast So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey folks, here's episode 104 of the Canadian Bushcraft podcast. I am here with Ride the Adventure Guy to talk about a really fun experience that we got to have for the first time for both of us, and that is smelting. And unlike bronze smelting and copper smelting that we do here at Canadian Bushcraft, this is actually a form of getting food. Smelting is also known as smelt fishing or dip netting smelt. I've had smelt in the past. I've helped my dad clean smelt when I was a kid, but I've never been out to get them myself. They were common in this region where I live, uh, but before I was born, they stopped running due to pollutants and overfishing and all those kinds of things. And so, as many of you probably remember from some of our uh, Hunt Forge Grow segments, me and Chris Gilmore have talked about smelting during, I believe it was our ice fishing episode uh, or segment. And during that, he invited me to come up with it. And I took him up on the offer. And during that, I asked him like, hey, do you mind if I bring a couple of friends with with me? And he said, yeah, sure. No problem. The more, the more, the merrier. We'll be good. You just need to have, you know, dip nets and if possible, some waders. Like, okay. And we were sitting around the fire uh, around the same time while we were boiling maple sugar. And I was with Rye and I was with our, we were with our mutual friend, Kaylee, who's from Scugog First Nation. And I just said out loud, like, hey, Chris uh, mentioned that he wants to take me smelting. And Kaylee was like, can I come? And then Rye's like, I'd, I'd like to come too. So that was the origins of it. I contacted Chris, told him I got a couple friends that are going to come up with me. 
And last week we drove up to near Dwight, Ontario. And we brought some nets. We brought some camping gear in case we had to camp out. And we experienced something that neither of us ever experienced before. And it was something else. So before we dive into our experience, let's talk about what a smelt is. And Chris did a really good job explaining what smelt were in that segment for Hunt Forge Grow here on the podcast. But that was almost a month ago, actually a little bit over a month ago now. So just to reiterate, they are a small freshwater fish that is not native to this part of the world. They're native to the eastern parts of Canada and the United States. They are not native to the Great Lakes region. And so they were brought in here in the 1920s uh, to a small lake in Michigan, I believe. And then they escaped into Lake Michigan. And then they escaped into all the Great Lakes. And that makes them an invasive species. Some people believe that they are naturalized because they're not causing that much damage. Other people disagree and say that they're causing quite a bit of damage to bait fish populations because of out-competing uh, out them. Regardless, this means that they are a food source that you can get a lot of without feeling like you're damaging the ecology. Uh, you know, there, there's bag limits for wildlife. There's certain catch limits for fish, size rules, all that kind of stuff, how many you can take from what time of year, all that kind of stuff. All that's out the window with smelt. Smelt are not native. Smelt are considered invasive by most people who work for the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry here in Ontario. And most biologists will confirm that it is better to remove them from the ecology than let them remain. So you can pretty much do whatever you want. You can catch them however you want. You can take as many as you want. And because they're a short-lived fish, they're actually not that bad to consume. They're, you know, they live only for a couple of years. They're not going to bioaccumulate a lot of toxins in that time, unlike a pike or a muskie or a sturgeon or a, a walleye. They have very little contamination to them. Uh, and that makes them really good to eat, and they come up in large numbers. Uh, some schools can get up as into the tens of thousands, and some areas can get up into the hundreds of thousands. We, I think the largest school we saw was in the couple of, a couple of thousands. Yeah. I would say that was the biggest school that we saw, but we were also mm -hmm. kind of on the tail end or the early start. No one was quite sure. Well, even there was a larger school out in the lake that they yeah. had spotted earlier on, but we were waiting in the creek to see mm -hmm. if they were coming. They ended up coming from the other direction, though. Yeah, that was strange. So, from wherever the connecting body of water was to the main lake. Mm -hmm. like maybe that was the rendezvous point that or something maybe, that they had, yeah. or they were all getting to there. Mm -hmm. So And so what they do is they live in the deeper, colder lakes, and then for a very short window, like in some areas it could be as long as a week, but in most areas it's like two or three days, they swim upstream just like a salmon, just like a trout will lay eggs, and then they swim back out to the deep water. And that means that you have a very short opportunity to get to them. It's not like a salmon run where you have a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, migratory game bird season, uh, like duck hunting and uh, goose hunting because you have like three or four months where the birds are going to be migrating further and further from the north. They're here for a couple of days in a specific creek at a specific time. They don't run during the day. They run almost exclusively at night. The water temperature has to be above four degrees Celsius, I believe. And so there's, there's a lot of nuance to getting them. And so the first trick there for us to figure out how to do this is one of the reasons Ryan and I have never gone smelting before was we didn't know where to go. We didn't know when to go and we didn't know how to do it. Honestly, I never even knew it existed before you brought Fair. it up and everything. 
my experience in fishing has always been from a boat or on land. And we've done this classic fly fishing where you're out mm-hmm. your waders in the middle of a river stream. Sure. So mine has always been a rod and a reel and casting out, getting some bass or mm-hmm. some trout. And that's the extent of my fishing experience. So it was a lot more hands-on. Yeah. It was cool to get into the stream and just stand there. Unfortunately, I didn't have my own hip waders yet. Mm-hmm. So I was just in my shin-high rubber boots. Yep. So I was only able to stand on the bed while Kayla was pretty much swimming. <laughs> Waiting out into the... I would point out, oh, there's a good spot right on the corner. And I go shuffling over. <laughs> so so the, the, the first thing that we got to understand is the, the ecology of these fish. And we've explained that, I think, the natural history, not the ecology, but the natural history of these fish. Now you got to figure out where am I going to get them. And the best thing you can do is what we did. Find a local. Mm-hmm. Chris Gilmore, Laura Gilmore, our buddy Ethan McLeod... They all live in the Dwight-Huntsville region, and they know where all these creeks are, and they're watching them like hawks. They're constantly checking on them and seeing when the fish are moving. And then immediately Chris called me. It was like Sunday afternoon, I believe, uh, of last of the weekend before, so two weeks ago now, that he gave me a call. He's like, hey, they're running. And it was like Tuesday. We were already driving up. He's like, they're, they're not running hard yet. I think you got a day or two. And it was like Tuesday or Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday. We all piled into the truck, Kaylee's truck, drove up north, got to his place. And the first thing that we had was smelt tacos. Laura had made these amazing. It's delicious. Oh, my God. Panko bread. Yeah. And all these, like, mango salsa and, like, she had the the shredded beets. I think she had a homemade tomato salsa. Okay. Mango salsa is the idea that I've been trying. Right, right. Sorry. Yeah, that was your idea. Um, Yeah, don't steal (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all these different things already set up and like it's amusing to me because every time i've had a fish taco i freaking loved it yeah but every time someone says hey we're having fish tacos or hey do you want a fish taco i kind of cringe there's this weird thing in my head that is not going to be that great and then i have a fish taco whether it's like a salmon taco or a tuna taco like we did when we were camping mm-hmm. I'm like, these are delicious. Why the hell was I concerned about this? Every time. This is like the 20th time I've had a fish taco. But these ones were phenomenal. And one of the cool things about the smelt is they're so small that their bones are kind of insignificant. It's like a fish stick. Yeah. At the end of the day. It's yeah. just a bite, double bite size. Piece of fish. Piece of fish. With some breading on it. Yeah. You just toss a few of those inside a tortilla. Loaded up with your fixings, and yeah. To go. Oh, and they were like corn tortillas that she had heated up and everything. Yeah. They were so good. So that was like we already had sunk our teeth. And when we first got there, she's like, "No, no, no, you got to work for your dinner." <laughs> so we cleaned the the smell. We sat there with our knives, and Kaylee was having some struggle because her knife wasn't that sharp. Uh, I brought my own little knife that I knew was going to be good for that, and it, it I was whipping through them pretty good. And again, I've cleaned them before, so I was kind of ex- knew what I was to expect. I was using a technique that was a little bit extra because I was cutting multiple places before I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And then once Ethan showed me his way where it just takes two cuts of your knife, it changed the game for me even. Mm-hmm. So I'm like the reason we want to record this podcast episode is because this was a new experience for both of us. Yeah. But this is something that we really love. I'm pretty sure this is going to be cut. Like by the second 
dip of the net, both Ryan and I were like, this is a tradition of ours now. We're taking this on as a tradition. We're going to go up every year or we're going to find other spots where we don't interfere with their fishing too much. I had no idea what to bring whatsoever. I was yeah. like, what do I bring? And you're like, boots and maybe some neoprene gloves. I'm like, well, I've got both of those. I don't have the hip waders mm-hmm. yet. So I'm just, I'll just go with the flow. Yep. Follow what's going on. Yep. A lot more experienced people than me out totally. there. So I was back in student mode. It was, I, I, I brought everything I knew I was going to need and I brought everything that possibly needed. And I still felt like I was in student mode because I'm like, this is different. This is completely different. And just like my fishing experience in the background is casting just like you, mm-hmm. but also spearing and bow fishing. Like yeah. I've done a lot of non, and that's why we had an episode last week of non angling methods. Cause I've done many of those non angling methods. This was still very new to me. I've never really dip netted before. And so there was a couple of moments when I started, when I was right in the middle of the creek, waist deep in this very fast moving solid current creek, I'd see the fish and I would almost try to spear them (laughs) with the dip net. It was a complete fluke and I would have to like correct myself mid thrust of the spear, which is not a spear. And then I'd be like, oh crap, it's a net, scoop, scoop, scoop. And I would catch like half the amount of fish I could have or a fraction of that even. All the while I'm you know, chest deep, waist deep in this water, feeling like a grizzly bear on a salmon run. And then I hear this hoot and holler behind me. And I look back on to Ryan, who's up on the bank, who has like a third of his net full. Yeah, was, That was incredible. I was just on the bend in the shallows with the water up to my shins. And then I'm surprised the school of fish got past all of you guys because there's at least three or four people in mm-hmm. front of me. But then all of a sudden I'm shining my headlamp into the water. I've got my net ready in the water, not making any moves or anything, not trying to spook them. And all of a sudden I just see this school of at least a hundred fish yeah, just swimming right at the net. So I just leave the net there. And then all of a sudden once half of them were in, they just kind of played follow the leader. It was a lot harder to get them when they were one to five mm-hmm. of them because they had so much room to move and turn around and swim back out because they're fast fish. They are fast. I was, they could jump like eight, nine inches right out of the net. Yeah. I was amazed by that. So once they got halfway with that school, then that's when I swept it up Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I had a net full of fish. (laughs) That was the largest yield in that of, of smelt I saw for most of the evening until Ethan pulled out his his square net. That was a whole other ball game. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll talk about that. He's so, coming back with his buckets and filling up yours. <laughs> Here we go. I'm yeah. not going to process this much. <laughs> yep. So we were using dip nets, which are your classic, what people look at as a fishing net, but with a finer mesh. So your classic landing net that you would have in a boat if you're out fishing for walleye or fishing for pike in, in Lake Ontario or something. It's the same net, same length of net pole, maybe a little skinnier in material, mm-hmm. a little lighter. But it's the same material in general with just a finer mesh net to catch these tiny little fish. And even then, some of them were wriggling out of the mesh when you were hauling them and holding for a while. Yeah, they're pretty small, so they would scoot their way through, and I had to pick some by mm-hmm. hand out. So I wasn't giving them any more hurt than they yeah, yeah. deserve sort of thing. So I'd pull them out instead of ripping them backwards with their gills yeah. caught in the net. So. And what I found really fascinating was they died almost immediately in the buckets. And I think it's because it was a lack of moving water. Yeah. Like once they were in, even though I filled it with water, 
and I'd pour my, my smelt in there, within a matter of minutes, they'd be just dead. They, there would be very little fighting in the water. And yeah. was, other people were tossing them into empty buckets. You would hear them thrash for yeah. like five, ten minutes. Then someone would be like, put some water in there. And they just seemed to die. Well, I had the water in the bucket. And the first net or two, I put them in. And they had room to like kind of swim around. Swim yeah. around. But by the time I was getting the other nets full, then all of a sudden I look back. And the water is already kind of turned sort of gray. Yeah. And those fish were just heads up out of the water. That's why I started feeling bad Mm. was when they were up and their mouths just agape and trying to gasp sort of thing. So that was like, Oh God, (laughs) I got to learn to live with this kind of shit. (laughs) So yeah, if you're going to kill them, you got to kill them. Yeah. It's not as easy as when you get like a fish out of the water, you bonk it on the head sort of thing. Or put on a leader and let it stay on the water for a while. Things like that. So Yeah. I noticed after about half an hour or so, they were starting to kick the bucket. Which is strange because mine would be dead. And like by the next time I brought a net in, they'd be dead. They were just so intimidated by it. <laughs> They're like, who is this grizzly man picking me up out of the We're water? in black bear country. When the hell did the, gra- the brown bears no get way out. Now, I better just get out of here. I'll just die now. Yeah. He's going to make it hurt. But yeah, it was, it was surreal. So like, these, the first creek we went to, we stayed there for about an hour and a half, two hours, I'd say. Give or take. We got there around 1130 and we left around one something. And that's including like a half hour break we took in there to give the creek a little bit of time to settle. Because we've turned up the mud and everything else and the silt and the, the one run of fish may have ended already, but the next run may not start yet. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'd give it a half hour rest. Everybody go back up to the parking lot, have a couple cigarettes tell a couple stories, make everybody laugh, all that kind of stuff. And then we'd get back to work. And the Creek was unique because it's this nice winding, real sharp turn oxbow kind of Creek there. And there'd be these deeper pools full of silty leaves and stuff. And then other parts were just these real shallow spots of rocky bottom, sandy bottom sometimes. And it was just a, like, I'd love to see those places in daylight because it just looks so pretty in the flashlights. But I would go out into the deeper spots because I could reach them in the waders, everybody that couldn't stayed up on shore. And it became like this system. Like I would miss a batch and I would like, hey, Kaylee, they're coming your way. Or, hey, Ryan, get ready at the bend. Mm-hmm. And they would show up and the person would scoop and catch a few more. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we ever got an entire school. Maybe Ethan with that one net. Of his. So we were using dip nets. He was using what's called a square net. Was a thing too. There were quite a few people upstream of us yep. too. So yep. who knows what how they many were there really were. there? So true. So I think that's where Ethan and them were right. upstream from us. So yeah, and there were a few downstream from us too. So so Ethan had these what's called a square net. It's just a square mesh of net with a frame in it that almost looks like a tent, like yeah. a tent frame. And then it comes to an apex. You tie off to a pole, and then you drop it down to the bottom of one of these deep pools, and then you just Wait a while, turn your light on, take a look down. When it looks like there's a lot of fish on it, you just lift the pole. I see them a lot in fishing videos from places like Indonesia. Yeah, in the Philippines and, and such. Yeah. yeah, Southeast Asia. Yeah. It seems to be a common technique. And similar nets are I've seen down in the States in like Texas and Florida when I was living down mm-hmm. there. Um, they have cast nets for like catching shrimp or prawns and stuff as well. 
that are kind of like the reverse, like the inverted version of one of these square nets where the square net goes to the bottom mm -hmm. and then you lift up, whereas a casting net, you throw it out over the fish and then dredge them back in. Yeah. But it's a similar kind of concept. You're on shore and you lift and draw in the net. And on the first creek, you know, we were there for like a little under two hours, I would say, hour and a half to two hours. And we got like, you know, I think I had like a quarter of a bucket. Maybe mm -hmm. Kaylee had a quarter of a bucket. You had a little bit more than us because that first big scoop you did. I got the majority of mine from that yeah. creek. Yeah. And then we talked during our, you know, we're packing everything in and everyone's kind of gone back after the break, set up again. The creek's kind of winding down. And that was something that was really fascinating to me. Is like one creek would want, would be like really active from 1130 until like 1230 for like an hour. It'd be like everybody's there getting all the fish. And then it dies down by like one. Okay. Ethan, I'm talking with Ethan and Chris. I'm like, hey, do you guys want to check out that other spot you were talking about? Grassmere or whatever it was? Whatever the next uh, town over was. And they're like, yeah, let's go check it out. And we get there and it's like we just got there when the big swarm started to come in from that pool. Mm -hmm. And this creek had like a beaver dam and then a big pool below the beaver dam. Yeah, this one was about 20 feet wide where the other yeah. one was about maybe eight yeah i would say definitely at least half if yeah. not smaller mm -hmm. um the first creek was like you could cross it in like three steps this one was like you have to wade for a while to get to the yeah. other side um and speaking from experience that was <laughs> there and there was some deep pools like the first creek there was nowhere i couldn't go with my waders on i could mm -hmm. go everywhere on that creek it was really easy this creek there was this one pool under the beaver dam where it's like eight or nine feet deep. And it's like, I can't go in there. There's, I, I, I can see them in there. I can turn my light on and see them all the way down to the bottom. Like how clear were those creeks, man? That was the thing. I could barely even get in the water. There was a couple of little muddy shoulders that I yeah. could stand on and kind of try to reach out. But the water was so much deeper and that's wider. You'd put your net out there and they'd swim underneath your nets yeah. or around it. Yeah. And the, the flow was a little more too there. Yeah. I, I think that spot is definitely like a, you need you need waders yeah. for that creek. I don't think you could bank fish it like we did on the first one. It was one. a little bit of bank area, but with so many, we had maybe eight, ten people yeah, there with yeah. us. So there's only so much room to go around. You don't want to encroach <laughs> on anybody else's face. Hey, move over a bit while you stand shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, sort of exactly. <laughs> this one, it was definitely a wading creek, and it, it got deep. And it was funny because you could see in these big pools a lot of smelt at the bottom, and so I would just stand on the edge. Cause they would, they can't, they don't stay still. They have to move almost like a shark. It seemed yeah. like, and they would spin around clockwise. They'd go over to the West side of the bank and then come back over to the East side of the bank and then over to the West side of the bank and then back over to the East side of the bank in this big clockwise spin. Or and if they were going upstream. Sometimes they would just be there cause they were like on a treadmill with the yeah. water flowing against them. So it's at least oxygenating their. Yeah. And yeah. Everything. So they were just there. And so I would just scoop and catch like 50. And then it got to the point where me and Kaylee were trading nets because she would catch the ones that came by where you guys were. So you'd be shit sitting up on shore. You'd mm -hmm. be in the deep across the nook sort of thing. Yeah. And then back forth. And when she was busy worrying about fish, then I'd grab the net from you. Yep. And then we'd have like a triple. Yeah, it was a full going. system going of like, and you guys would yell at me like certain spots where you saw fish, but you couldn't get to them. That was and the thing. I went I went right on my little spot mm -hmm. on the outside bend of the creek, but then I could see a bunch of them just hanging out in that one little corner. Go over that way. You yeah. moved over a bit. And all of a sudden, that's when you were pulling out net after net, yep. switching nets back and forth. Yep. And it was incredible 
because I would scoop, have the time to get over to Kaylee, who's 20 feet away, give her my net full of fish, grab her net, walk over, and then they would be coming back again within the next minute or so. Take them about, you know, three or four minutes to do a spin. Yeah. And so I just, I camped on it. Like I stayed right there. And I think we did that for like 30 or 40 minutes, mm-hmm. just like back and forth, back and forth, trading yeah. off nets. And you guys would catch like the small run yeah, getting past me or the ones coming up the creek. And then we did this like six or seven times. And I felt like like our trio, these three amigos were so good at smelting. <laughs> and then I heard, well, got him. And our buddy Ethan walks over with a square net and he fills two five gallon buckets of his own. And then goes, do you guys want some? <laughs> and Kaylee was immediately like, yes. And so he just starts pouring into her bucket. I'm like, well, I can't have her taking more smelt than me. Yeah, I'll take some. He filled, like, again, we had maybe at this point, each of us, maybe a third to half. I think you had about the same. I had a third about. Yeah. Yeah. And Ethan filled our buckets up to four and a half gallons each mm-hmm. in, in total. So... So I probably got 90% of my fish at the first location. The second location, I couldn't really get a good spot. So yeah. that's why I was just jumping in and helping whoever yep. I could sort of thing. And man, that was appreciated. I can tell you that right now. Because every time I tried to get at that second creek, so at most of the uh, the first creek, I would just have my bucket in the water with me. Because it's only like in, like in between the pools where it's mm-hmm. shallow, it's like eight inches deep, nine inches deep. Yeah. So I could just have it in there mm-hmm. in the creek with me. So every time I scooped, I would just throw my fish in. Yeah. I didn't have to go bug anybody else. Mm-hmm. That second creek, it was so deep and the bank was so high. The one time I caught a lot of smelt, I lifted and I lifted it so high to try and get it up into my bucket that I almost knocked my bucket over and lost all my smelt from the last creek. Yeah. At the same time, I started watching the net handle bend because mm-hmm. I was lifting it so high and the weight of the, of the fish was dragging back yeah. down. And I was like, I can't do it this way. This is not going to be sustainable. I'm going to break this net we just bought. Mm -hmm. And so we began this cycle of I would pass a net to somebody and then somebody else or some, that same person would pass me an empty net. And that's how our cycle began. And then Ethan did his one trick, his one lift. And he had three, I'd say just shy of three and a half buckets of fish in one net dip. (laughs) That was insane to me. That was like, I couldn't, I was so stunned. I forgot that I had fish in my net still watching him fill all these buckets up. It was incredible. And and this goes to show like, this is someone who knows his creeks. He's been watching his creeks. He really has gotten into the smelt world mm-hmm. in the last handful of years that Ethan's been doing it. I think he's been doing it for like nine or 10 now. Yeah. Anyways, it's, it's not something he grew up doing, but it's something he fell in love with when he moved up to where he lives. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he knows where he's seen the sweet spots before. He knows the kind of equipment he's going to need for it. He's practiced and used that equipment, and he knows how to watch those creeks to to observe when they run. And so, with him and Chris and Laura, like bouncing all these pieces of advice to us while we're going, like, "Hey, you should move over there, uh, uh, Rye," or "Hey, Kaylee, check out this spot over here," and just going around and around. And Kaylee brought her friend Rhonda with her. And we had all these awesome people just working together like this little like team. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like the fishing Avengers. Like it, <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was absolutely great. And I, I can't wait to do it again. I just want to be readier than this year. Mm-hmm. Last year, like this time we were ready. We had everything that really was necessary. I think knives 
we'll we'll do like a what we should have done better after this but like we we all brought what was really necessary and we were able to do well but like there's definitely like room for improvement for year two but i want to have a year two and i want to have a year like five and a year 15 i want to make smelting like a part of a tradition for canadian bushcraft for for our crew it made me feel better knowing that there were invasive species and everything and knowing how many of them there are so my third of a bucket wasn't that big no. in a sense compared to how many are actually out there. It was a drop in the bucket. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was really fascinating to me to see this other part of like this Canadian culture. My grandmother, when I told her that I was going smelting, like, hey, I heard you talk about smelts before. Do you want some? I'm going up tomorrow to catch some smelt. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother's eyes lit up. And I told my dad the week before when we went to dinner for, uh, we went to dinner for something. I can't remember what it was for. Uh, and I mentioned like, Hey, I'm, do you like smelt? He's like, yeah, why? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going up smelting in a couple of days. And it's like, he stopped and kind of gave me a look like, Oh shit, that's going to be really fun. Like you could see in his eyes, like mm-hmm. almost like a nostalgia came back to him. Mm-hmm. Cause it was down here. We had smelt all along, not in rice Lake, but coming out of Lake Ontario. Yeah. And for some reason, they just don't seem to run there anymore. No one's quite sure. It could be po- a pollution. But more than likely, it's pollution, frankly. Yeah. Uh, that far south in Ontario. But it could also be habitat loss. Maybe somebody put dams on those creeks. Maybe somebody uh, poured a bunch of fill into one of the creeks and it made a blockage that they couldn't get past. Mm-hmm. That could be very well what the reason is. Or it could be that those creeks have been changed by people in a way that they're no longer the right kind of habitat to spawn and lay their eggs in. There's a lot of reasons that could cause it. But there's also the fact that not a lot of people are aware of the place where my grandmother and my father had gone smelting when they were younger. And they just kept telling me all these pieces of advice. And my dad was reminding me of when I was a kid and he cleaned smelt with me and all these other little just parts. And it was just so damn cool to finally participate in it. And be a part of something that not a lot of people in Ontario even know this happens. Yeah. Like, I was aware that smelt existed because, again, I've eaten them. I've had them. Friends have brought them over. I've cleaned them with my dad. Mm-hmm. But, like, I, it kind of, like, fell to the wayside because they're not in front of us. Out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I could tell you, oh, yeah, there's a certain kind of fish in this spot you can catch. And you don't think about it until you're at that spot. And then you're like, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. There's this thing right here I can go see or catch or, or eat or whatever it may be. So for me, it was like all good. Every single part of the whole trip was just fun. It was great. Yeah. That was a new learning experience for me too, just because I knew my dad always talked about how he used to have anchovies on his pizza and everything. It always kind of weirded me out eating a (laughs) fish pretty much whole. Yeah. Bones and all. I'm like, well, I know about like, getting salmon bones in your salmon filet or anything like that just how annoying it is picking those out of your teeth let alone i'm gonna eat the whole fish but then once i had those fish tacos i was like oh my god yeah they just you couldn't even tell there was bones in there there was like a crunch but that could have been the panko like yeah it, it was so well cooked and laura was telling us like all these other ways to cook them and chris was telling us ways every person that was smelting was giving us recipes uh, even after Ethan texted me another recipe later that he called a uh, Muskoka ditch salmon. Yeah. And it was just like a little bit of olive oil and you braise anyways, broil, not braise, but anyways, um, they were telling us about like how you can pickle them. Yeah. And basically the vinegar dissolves the bones. 
and so like even when even without that dissolving of bones thing i never got a single smelt bone stuck in my teeth yeah it just crunched up with everything else Mm -hmm. it was perfect yeah so like yeah it was delicious man it was even when i went home and i pretty much recreated the same thing yeah taco wise it was all the same and my parents i took them some too they hooked them up and they were hesitant at first i'm like oh i brought you some fish tacos yeah some smelt i'm gonna make some fish tacos for you and they were like oh okay why are you gonna feed me fish you found in a creek somewhere like <laughs> what are you trying to do trying to poison us right like, now? what the why does our this son's like, friend caleb drag him into these crazy three-eyed fish from the late great lakes kind of thing so but then they had them they loved them too sort of thing so but i have so many packs to use up now. <laughs> yeah that was and that was the things like we were out until almost three it was like 2 30 that we were getting back and it took us about 20 minutes to get back to the house yeah and then we were up until almost four just chatting about everything like it was it was like a big adult sleepover without yeah. it being like it was just a sleepover with adults it was yeah. so like Kaylee was up on the couch. You and I were on sleeping pads on the floor. Chris was chilling on a, like a ottoman, ottoman of some yeah. sort. And we were just talking about everything and all kinds of things. And finally we were all like, okay, it's like 4 a.m. We should go to sleep. Yeah. We slept hard and then all by like mid morning we're up. And then we began the process of <laughs> processing. Yeah, Wild Muskoka. <laughs> yes. Uh, we were, so we were with Laura from Wild Muskoka, Chris, of course, from Chris Outdoors. And everything else that we talk about on the Hunt Forge Grow uh, segment of the podcast. But it was really fascinating how quickly it devolved into, okay, how can we do this as quick as possible? Who just, who really wants all their fish cut? Because this is this is a lot of work. And we, like Laura and Chris were warning us about that the night before when we were processing the fish and then eating the tacos. Yeah, Laura was like, I want you to cut these fish before you go out fishing for them. That's why I didn't ask Ethan for some of his. <laughs> he was filling up your buckets. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're taking some back to your communities and everything. Yeah, exactly. Like that. And I'm like, I'm not going to get a whole full bucket of these fish. So. Yeah. And so Chris and Laura warned us, and, and Rye actually paid attention. I took them from Ethan because I was going to be giving them away. Yeah. I was going to be giving a lot of fish away, and so was mm-hmm. Kaylee. So we weren't complaining about that. The problem was, how many of those fish did we want to actually cut? So we spent the first part of the cutting focusing on yours because you live in downtown, you know, GTA. Yeah. You don't really have the room to be cutting up, you know, several hundred fish. It was a lot more challenging. You don't have the same equipment I do to process them I, and everything else. I could have made yeah. do with it. But... but to me, it was like Kaylee and I can work <laughs> on these. We can do these ourselves. Kaylee's been giving most of hers away. And most of the people that I give them away to don't care if they're gutted. Yeah. Many of them, in fact, uh, one of our friends stopped by recently. He was like, "So you went smelting?" I'm like, yeah. And I gave him some smelting. He goes, "Oh, you?" Uh, he grew up smelting. He's like, "You? Uh, you cut them all?" He's like, "Yeah, I want to make sure they're ready for you to cook." And he goes, "I mean, they're ready to cook with the heads and the guts in still." It's like, no way. Like I've, I, I knew that, but it was like he was so like, "Why did you even gut them?" I like I can get cutting the head off, but the only thing that's in the guts right now is their milt or their eggs that cooks up well too in the fish. And I was like, you're not wrong <laughs> because I ended up cutting in total. I did the math because I've been counting them in batches as we were going mm-hmm. myself alone in the next 24 hours. I cut 
1200 plus smelt yeah between like helping you with your batch helping kayla with her batch and then doing mine at home can you ever say that in three hours you gathered and then had to process 1200 of anything mm-hmm. like maybe blueberries okay yeah wild rice blueberries <laughs> but like even acorns i'm usually done in the hundreds not in yeah. the thousands <clears throat> and i only did half of my bucket and you did half of your bucket they're surprisingly difficult to open up and get the heads off mm-hmm. you don't have the weight you have if you had a salmon or, or a walleye or something a steelhead yeah. or something like that where you have some weight to go on so you'd have to daintily hold, the hold the tail or something and then go right up the belly and open it up and scoop it out with your finger you'd already go behind the head so then you just pull everything out yeah so those are so the two cuts a bit of a Thomas. learning curve sort yeah. of thing to it and it was also they're small to hold on to, so you're always worried to cut in yourself. You couldn't manhandle. No, it's not like grabbing the head of a walleye and pulling it back and yeah. getting the gills cut out. Mm-hmm. It's There's no mass to work with there. Yeah. And so, A, really thin, really sharp knife. Like, that was... I end up cutting the majority of the fish out of the two days in total because I had the right knife. My knife had a has a scalpel blade. It's one of those uh, Haviland Perantas, I think it is. Yeah. Um, they're they're scalpels. They're made to cut really fast, really deep, and go through practically anything that's not solid bone. <clears throat> Everybody else was using like half sharpened paring knives. Yeah. Folders that were just too chunky or too thick of edged. So like out of the whole thing, I think that's the number one thing I really like. I clearly I knew to do that. But I appreciated that I knew to do that. Yeah. Because that that was the difference between like getting frustrated with cutting them and just getting frustrated with how many you've cut already. Mm-hmm. They're there that that saved my hands a lot of hand, cramps. That saved my hands a lot of probably blisters or cuts. Yeah. Because it was so easy for me to slip into the meat and mm-hmm. open it up with one push and not have to kind of saw along. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, but those two cut techniques. So I <clears throat> to for those listening the way I was doing the smell was kind of how I remember my dad teaching me, but I added some steps along the way, apparently. Mine was you cut up along one gill, cut up along the other gill, meet them in the middle on the spine, and then cut down the belly and pull it all out. That was like three or four cuts. I showed that to Ethan. He goes, cool, I'll show you this one. And he pulls out his knife and makes one cut on the very back of the neck, barely even cutting into the bone, then goes down and opens the vent to the gills, and then just grabbed with his hooked finger the spine and just basically broke it out and the gills tore out and pulled with them the pectoral fins those little bony parts mm-hmm. so he's like you don't have to worry about the fins that get stuck in between your teeth and i was like that's that's experience right there yeah like i was going by the theory of like okay this is how i would do any other fish i'll just do it faster and smaller mm-hmm. to oh i can just use the spine as leverage and break the head clean and with that comes all the guts mm-hmm. and i didn't have and the gills come with it i didn't have to cut around those gills at all yeah so he had already cut my cutting time in half mm-hmm. it, it it changed the game once we figured out that tra- technique yeah and i was like you ever seen this chris and chris like that's how everybody does it and i was like okay yeah i did it the wrong way then that's not how my father <laughs> would have done it it was efficiency and that was like that's the, the efficiency to me was in three hours, we got so many fish that we couldn't finish processing them in a single day. 
I would have tried it without cutting them open, but I kind of like the butterflying yeah. effect that yeah. you got from it. I'm slicing up the belly, and then once you fry it, you can have it all splayed out. Yeah, and it fries and quicker it that way. Everything. It's more even. Yeah, and it just reminds you of butterfly shrimp. It really like did. That. So <clears throat> it was amazing that way. It and all was... I do when I went to go serve it, I would just pull the end tail off. Yep, and then suddenly just looking like a fish stick. Yeah. It's like fish fries. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's exact. Did one of us say that at some point? Because I, I, I swear <laughs> I said that or someone said that. They they are fish fries, not French fries. They're just like a fry. Yeah. Doesn't help that they're going up river to make fries. <laughs> That's the baby fish. Anyways, that it was such an easy thing to do. It was just repetitive. Yeah. Like the cutting of the fish wasn't hard work. It wasn't exhausting work. But there was just so many. For the outcome, it's well worth it with how yeah. many pounds of fish you end up with yeah. at the end of it. And you can just eat it all. You don't have to remove the skin or anything. Yeah. So I I estimated between Kaylee and I and your bucket, we had just shy of 50 pounds. Yeah. Is by my estimates of what I was carrying when I was carrying the two buckets. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, if Ryan's is about a third of half of this. And the whole time I was mm. thinking if it was like a survival situation, that would be just the perfect oh. thing to happen. You just have piles yeah. and piles of fish. You could smoke them over a fire. Yeah. And... You you could take the whole fish. So this is a, a Larry Dean Olson from Outdoor Survival Skills book that he wrote years, years back in the 70s, I think. You can take small fish, dry them in the sun evenly until they're completely crumbly, bone and all. Yeah. Grind it into a powder that'll keep for a year because it's dried meat. Mm-hmm. That's pulverized. So you can just, oh, I'm, I couldn't catch a rabbit today. Yeah. I couldn't find a squirrel today. Take a handful of that mulch and throw into hot water. There's a fish soup you can just drink and there's your nourishment for the night. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking the whole time, I was like, we wouldn't even have to smoke these guys. But if we want to, we could have smoked fish powder yeah. that we've been making a fish soup of as a survival ration. Mm -hmm. It was like, this is brilliant, mm -hmm. brilliantly efficient for survival. Yeah. If you're stranded in the wilderness and you know the you know a thing or two about smelt and you know a thing or two about the region you're in and maybe you brought up a, uh, a bandana or a head net that you turn into a, a dip net. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be a lot of work to to get that all guts and all yeah. dried and preserved and be living off that when you need to. Mm -hmm. And even just if you're like okay, I'm going to be stuck out here for the next 3 or 4 days, but people will find me because of where I am. You can just be fat and happy the whole time. <laughs> you can be like, I got my water, I got my shelter, I got my fire, and now I'm eating 1,200 smelt. Feeling like a grizzly, just right? wading through the rivers. And I was even joking, like, we could just call it, turn these into, like, mountain sushi. Because <laughs> when I was up in uh, Wyoming, we did mountain sushi. Yeah. where Because the creeks are coming right out of a spring that's mountain-fed. Mm -hmm. There's no bacteria parasites that are in that headwater. Yeah. And so you know if there's trout living up in the headwater, the likelihood of there being any parasites in them is next to nil. Mm -hmm. And so we would literally cut fillets off these little cutthroat trouts that were like five inches long and roast that on fire and eat. Yeah. And it was delicious. Or we would just eat it raw. Mm -hmm. And I was making that joke and uh, Laura was like, no, these are <laughs> this is fresh water at sea level or a little bit higher. Yeah. You need to cook these. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, never mind then. I can't do like a, a smelt ceviche. Damn. Yeah. 
It was so good. So for you for next time, what would you like to have or what would you want to remember for next year? Well, I think I need hip waders either way. Yep. Just so you can, you're not just standing on the bank of the river. Oh, so close yet, so far. <laughs> yep. Caleb, go get them. So <laughs> there I go. I'm sending my personal grizzly bear. <laughs> so yeah, that's something I need to get anyway to get into waterfowl hunting mm-hmm. and everything. So Helping on the trap line and stuff too. Big on the list. Something good to have. I almost thought maybe getting one of those dry suits that people use for kayaking. Canoeing. You mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. It's a full body. It's got the gasket around the neck and the wrist. You'd have so it for spring and flow season. Out. I'd, I'd be maybe a little worried about tracking through the water and getting caught up on logs yeah, and stuff like yeah. that. I'm not sure how heavy duty they are on the legs and I'd be ruining a thousand dollars suit sort of thing. Yeah. That was, so. that was the, what I really appreciate about the the waders I have, yeah. they have that kind of mesh, almost chain mail in the bottom half. Yeah. So I would be getting hit by a sharp branch. Yeah. And not be having a puncture in my waders, mm-hmm. let alone a puncture in my leg. Mm-hmm. I've really, if for those who are curious, high and dry waders, I'm we're not endorsed by them yet. <laughs> we're we're not sponsored by them. I'm telling you from just experience of going through a lot of waders in the last decade. I really appreciate the high and dry waders and the features they have for the price point that they have. I had to put aside some money from the tooth fairy. Yeah. So I can get one, but yeah. it'll be very much on the list. We can, incre- we can inc- increase your allowance <laughs> for Thank living you. in the basement. Uh, we're moving him back in the basement eventually. <laughs> he's been, he's been I wasn't free. I making anything down there before. So, so three is an upgrade. Yeah. We'll, so. we'll triple it. $3 an hour. Exactly. I love it. I'll be able to get my waders in a few years. But, yeah, I think waders are number one on the list for that. I've got a net now. Yep. So yep, I do. got that. Uh, other than that, I think a good small skinning knife. Because yep. I've mostly focused. I've got fillet knives and everything mm-hmm. like that. But nothing quite that was right for smelt like yeah. your little yeah. folding scalpel knife. Yeah, I've used that thing on beaver, otter, whole gamut of critters. But I was like, this feels like the right kind of knife. It's flexy enough that it's not going to feel like I'm trying to punch a hole through the fish. Because I just have my folding buck little tiny knife. That would be good for processing small game and skinning a small animal. Or or even like like just processing like a bass. Yeah, it had the really rounded belly and everything but so it wasn't quite for the small one it wasn't really making the incisions that i needed to make so something like that so waiters net got that and then a good knife i've got all the neoprene knife uh gloves gloves anyone could ever get some of those i'm like an outfitter when it comes to canoeing (laughs) and kayaking gear so i'll just rent a pair off you next i think those are the main main things i got buckets (laughs) fair yeah uh for me i think equipment wise for next year's i'd like to bring my own cooler like i think we should all have our own cooler for afterwards nice to have some ice right that's what i'm getting at yeah Yeah. we've got a an electric cooler that we use for like when we're doing shows and stuff we could have all of our food yeah like a little mini fridge yeah um that could work if we have the right plugins for a vehicle or if we bring a generator Mm -hmm. and if we actually do like a trip up where we're there yeah. for like several nights mm-hmm. uh going from creek to creek doing like the grand tour of the eastern muskokas yeah um 
I think that's when it, where an electric cooler or something like that would be great because then we don't have to worry about buying ice. It yeah, keeps it cold enough. True, yeah. Um, more volume too, so that you don't have to take up half the cooler with ice. Exactly. Anyway, so. Exactly. So on that, I would say that's like the main thing that I would want to have for next time. Um, yeah. Again, I had I had, I got a net. Uh, I've got my waders, and I've got the knife I want. Um, I think I got a cat climbing across me. Um, I think the only other thing I would want is a cooler, mm-hmm. and maybe, yeah, I'm going to say this one: a chair. Frankly, I've got a couple of back injuries. One of those square nets would be nice too. I, I was going to mention those as well, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, a net. I, I was like, I already got a net, but yeah, those square nets were. It'd be a nice little addition to have with us. Even like making a cool bushcraft version or something like that, like actually. Ooh weaving your own net yeah, and yeah just yeah. using whatever branches and poles you can from yeah. saplings so oh oh i got an idea for us to experiment with next time okay ben piersma our good friend from ben's backwoods outdoors mm-hmm. or ben's backwoods.com sorry uh he designed the bandana okay i oh yeah i remember seeing that at the symposium yeah and i have one i've, uh, I've been yeah. using it for about two years now since the symposium actually mm-hmm. um I want to test it out. I want to see if we can catch smell. Make a couple different models, yeah. prototypes. Well, I just want to take his net, but then I want to yeah. see if I can make a hoop to make it into a dip net, or can yeah, I exactly. set it up as a square net? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll have to pick up a few models. Oh, I guess I think I'd get through your saying now. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to get some uh, some more from Ben. Ben, get ready for an order. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that'd be a fun one. I, I agree with the square net. I agree with yeah. the square net. Um, but yeah, I think just for me, a cooler. Mm-hmm. cooler and a chair of some sort so i can rest because that was the biggest part is like you're fighting that current when you're in there non-stop it's never stopping yeah. trying to push you you can stand in certain positions to make it easier or worse on yourself mm-hmm. but i've got several back injuries i've yeah. got at least two in the lower back and i've got one back injury up between the the, the shoulder blades and yeah, I would want a chair. I would want something to sit. I was squatting on my bucket once in a while, and that was okay for a little bit, or I would get up on the bank and rest my butt on the dry ground, keep my yeah. legs in the water. But an actual chair with a backrest would be really appreciated on. And it, we're not like, – that was what I found really fascinating was we were literally a walk away from our cars the yeah. whole time. We were never deep in the wilderness to get to these. It felt mm-hmm. like it was deep in the wilderness in a lot of ways. You felt really primal using a net to grab things out of the water and hoist them out with your own strength. And it feels wild because it's dark and it's kind of claustrophobically dark out there because you've got a headlight and that makes everything else even darker mm-hmm. away from the beam. But it was like if somebody did get injured, easy fix because you're usually out there with people. The water's fairly shallow. Get them out fairly easily. Get them back to a vehicle without having to worry about trying to get them out. Uh, carrying the fish out. If we were doing this mm-hmm. like two kilometers back, yeah. I would have made Ethan put all those fish back. <laughs> I would not have been carrying 35-something pounds of fish out of the woods. Mm-hmm. It was a very low-risk, high-reward yeah. style of hunting and fishing. It was really a lot like hunting. Like This is what I love about the non-angling fishing methods is you feel more like you're hunting than you are just casting a line and hoping. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's not like fishing. It's not like trapping. It's. You're not going to lose a line in the water with a hook and a bobber or anything like that. It's pretty affordable. Yeah. Like you look at a fly fishing kit for just a, a a proper, not, you know, like an intermediate fishing kit for fly fishing. You're dropping at least a grand. Yeah. At least a grand. 
this was 80 bucks for the for the uh, or sorry 60 something dollars for the nets mm-hmm. if you have your own rubber boots already awesome you can catch fish you're yeah. not gonna you may not catch the record number but you're gonna catch fish if you if, <coughs> if we were only one person on that first creek we would have just been catching fish mm-hmm. school after school and filling up buckets so it was yeah. only because we had so many people and stuff like that that mm-hmm. we were working as a team and all that so mm-hmm. i feel like it's not something you'd have to be really that worried about getting in just go within your limits find a creek that's shallow enough yeah know where that where they can swim around your net yeah. and get yourself even build out a little wall like the classic fishing style yeah, yeah. And so yeah there's a lot of affordability to it and very accessible um the expense is a net, whatever footwear that can keep you dry, mm-hmm. but then also a fishing license. Yeah. That, that's all you need. There's no tags. There's no limitations. So if you're, you know, living urban or you're living suburban or you're living in the backwoods or you live below the poverty line or you live well above the poverty line or somewhere in between, this is accessible. You don't have to be well-to-do to do this fishing. Fly fishing, you want to do a Colorado or Wyoming fly fishing trip. As long as you live in the area, because if you were lesser income and that's from what I was Toronto say, like, or something, it would take still totally. about three hours to get there. Yeah. So. And that goes back to a uh, having a connection to someone up in that area. Yeah. Because, again, if you live in, even if you do live above the poverty line, have all the other well-to-do kind of privileges, <clears throat> if you don't know when they're running, you're not going to have a great time. Well, I was just more meaning even access to transportation, having a vehicle and yeah. gas money to drive three hours yeah, totally. instead of just going to the grocery store down the street totally. on Young Street or something totally. like that. So. I think that's like the, what I was trying to get with the accessibility. Like those are, you have all those accesses yeah. as long as you can get there and you have someone that knows the area already. So if mm-hmm. you have those things, you have a chance. You have a really, really good chance mm-hmm. to bring in a lot of food. Like we filled buckets in hours yeah it's mind-boggling to me 10 out of 10 would recommend 11 out of 10 demand you do it <laughs> you're going outside the rules now we gotta go outside the rules. <laughs> so yeah um we've been talking a good while about smelt i i really do think that this is someone something that someone out there should try every chance they get an opportunity if someone has says hey we got one more seat in the car. We're going up to. Uh, we're going up. My cousin's got a spot. They just told me last night the smelter running. This is this is for you. This is for you. If you can get there, you find the right people, get the right equipment, dip net, fishing license, boots of some sort, waders even better if you got them. Yeah, uh, a cooler, maybe a chair. Beverages would be nice. Mm-hmm. I was getting quite parched, and all I had left in the truck was a cold coffee from earlier. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to have some bottles of water out there with us or orange juice or something. Yeah. But yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I liked it. It was fun. Go do it next year. There's no more right now. Do it. Do it. Thanks for joining in for this one. This is a real short episode, but it was an episode we both really want to share. If I had more information to share, (laughs) I would. (laughs) If I could go on for hours like I do on other topics sort of thing, but... But it's such an easy thing to talk it's so about. Straightforward. Yeah, there's not much to there's explain. A few items you need, and just standing in a creek with a net, 
Mm-hmm. Letting fish swim into your net. <laughs> and scooping before they realize that they want to get out of the net. So yeah, it's it's all a lot of the work is on the front end of knowing where to look. When to look. When to look. Yeah. Exactly. So but that's yeah, it. It's, it's nice and straightforward. It's a new one. I'm hoping we have some more new experiences that we can report back to everybody about because mm-hmm. this is again, this is something that's there for everybody, but half the world, if not more, don't know about it. Mm-hmm. so we're bringing it to you folks smelt go at smelting thanks for watching talk to you soon